At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, <laughs> I could really use Current. <laughs> I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. Back to another episode of the Let From Your Podcast. This is episode number two, and today we we'll we have a great guest on. His name's Will Chamberlain. He's a good friend of mine. But before we get into that, I do want to address some things about the last episode. Um, I discussed Kyle Rittenhouse, and I, I recorded the episode a few days before I posted it, and there was some miss some some what came out to be misinformation um, in a way. You know, he he obviously lived in Illinois, and at the time, I, you know, I just saw out of state. And I needed, I need to address that. He, he lived about 30 minutes away and apparently he worked in Kenosha from what I've, from what I understand now, he worked in Kenosha and he, he, um, other reports tell me that he, he was asked by the owner of the lot to, to help protect it. So if all that, all that's true, if all that's true, I'm going to assume it's true. Then obviously he was way more justified in his actions as I believe. And like I've said, I believe he, he acted in self-defense and I believe that he, he needs to, I believe this case needs to get looked into. Um, but I, I still will agree that as a 17 year old being around his age, it, it probably wasn't the smartest thing for him to be there with a gun. I don't think he had nefarious, nefarious intentions. I, I will continue to say that. But I still think it's not the best ca- the best place for someone our age to be, you know, untrained to be with with a firearm because stuff like this happens, and that that's just my continued belief on it. And still, I think I think Kyle went with good intentions, and I think Kyle wanted to help people, which he did help people. You know, he would, he was shown getting graffiti off of walls. He he was shown helping protesters. So getting that out of the way, we we have a great guest on. Uh, his name is Will Chamberlain. Like I said, he is somebody who has been very, very, very vocal about uh, big tech censorship. He has been very—he's been at the forefront of that. He—he—he's he, a good guy. He really is. Uh, but we'll get into that a little bit later on. First, I want to discuss—I uh, want to discuss my my own dealings with social media censorship, and then we'll get into another issue because it all kind of comes together. So about. I'd say I I want to say it was exactly a week before the 2018 midterms. You know, one of the biggest midterm elections we've had at least in the last couple of decades. I was at the peak of my Twitter. I reached millions of people a week. Well, like about one week before the midterm elections, 
my Twitter, I, I was, where was that? We, we went out, we went out to just eat. And I remember I logged on to Twitter just to, you know, just what's going on? What's happening in, in the Twitter world? Suspended. And the reasoning was evading permanent suspension. And I was like, okay, this must be a mistake. So I appealed it, obviously. And through the appeal, um, they they re-denied it. And now to also set the stage, uh, this is obviously about a week before November, so late October. In September, my congressman, uh, Buddy Carter from Georgia 1, he, he asked questions to Jack Dorsey. He asked questions to Jack Dorsey about um, about big tech censorship, and one of, you know, about half of his about half of his time, uh, Mr. Carter was asking was asking Jack Dorsey specifically about why me he didn't say my name, but why I wasn't verified. You know, why was this kid not verified? But there's all these liberal uh, kids are, and again, I want to thank Congressman Carter for doing that for for, for on my behalf, and so. You can imagine about a week before the election when I when I call the congressman's office and I say, hey, um, this is what's happening. My name is Noah Ring. You guys were really helpful uh, in getting Congressman Carter uh, to ask Jack Dorsey these questions. And he said he would work on it. And Nick, the, the legislative aide, he worked on it diligently. And what's actually very shocking is the day after the election, uh, I got an email from Twitter. Your account's been reinstated. Now, since then, my Twitter account has not really has not been at the same growth as it, as it was before. I've pretty much stagnated in the amount of followers I've had since then. And my reach, it my reach now with a little over 60,000 followers is down from what it was before. And you know, I, I will attest that some of that is probably I'm not I'm not tweeting near as active as I was before. However, when I'm tweeting with 60,000 followers and I get only a thousand people see it, then it starts to call into question. Again, I don't, I, I know that a lot of people who follow me also follow 20,000 other people. And I know that that gets drowned out, but I've received messages dozens of times over the past couple of weeks, especially saying, Hey, I haven't seen you in my feed in months. I haven't, you know, I searched your name. I can't find you. And I want to, I want to, I want to have, I want to say, First and foremost, that I I will I want to give Jack Dorsey the, the benefit of the doubt. I want to say that he's not doing this on purpose. I, I want to take him at his word. But then this leads into social media censorship. Should people be able to take social media away from you? Should they be able to take your Twitter, your Facebook, your Instagram away whenever they feel like it? And for a long time, the consensus answer was yes. Big tech should have this right because big tech wasn't big tech at the time. Facebook wasn't mainstream. But now, now it is, you know, these, a lot of these social media, uh, a lot of these, sorry, representatives, senators, governors, con- congressmen, even presidential candidates raise a lot of their money through social media. They do. They raise a lot of their money through growing their name, getting, you know, being coming more, uh, building the reputation. Like I'm a formidable opponent and they raise money through that. So. Now it's starting to get pushed more mainstream because we we saw where Congressman uh, Matt Gates, Congressman Jim Jordan, like their names were quote unquote being shadow banned, which is where Twitter's throttling your 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 uh, your reach. And then we see people actually get banned, uh, circa Alex Jones and uh, Laura Loomer. And now Laura Loomer, of course, is 
uh, is a congressional candidate in Florida's 21st district, I believe. Don't quote me on that 21st district. And now she'll be, she'll be uh, potentially, I mean, 50-50 chance of her being a congresswoman next year in January. Now, a couple things about Laura. First, uh, there was a ruling by, by a federal judge that said that public figures public officials like uh, politicians i'm assuming like cabinet level secretaries aren't allowed to block you because it's prohibiting you getting information makes sense makes sense so then here, here comes this question twitter permanently suspended laura loomer permanently suspended now that she's a congresswoman will she get a will she get her twitter back that, that's a, a, a serious question that i have that i have will she get her twitter back and then to carry on, as as in general, Laura Loomer is somebody who I, I've said repeatedly, I I believe she's done a lot of good for the conservative movement when it comes to Loomering. And this I bring up in the interview when it comes to Loomering. And if you don't know what that is, she did it to Stacey Abrams. She did it to Nancy Pelosi. Man, she might not have done Nancy Pelosi. I know she did it to Maxine Waters. Where basically she goes and she calls these people out for uh, either change of policy or, or or lying or whatever it may be she'll go and she'll call them out and it'll go very viral and a lot of people will see it and it it probably has influenced elections yes but the problem with laura the problem with laura is and in all fairness i've i've talked to laura before uh we had a decent relationship but this is when she was an activist laura loomer not a candidate laura loomer when somebody's actually running to be a representative for a party, they become a high-level member of that party. And we need to be careful as a party in who we allow to be a high member of the party. You know, we have been saying for years, for, de- for, for decades almost, that we are not a racist party, that we are not a sexist party, we're not, a, we're not Islamophobic, we're not homophobic. But Laura Loomer has made public public statements that can be led into this. That that can be that when you read into them, you can see whether or not she truly believes it. You can see that there is some bad there. There's some nefariousness there. Um, as Will Chamberlain points, will point out a little bit later in this podcast. She she once said that there should be an Uber in which Muslim drivers are not. They're not. There are no Muslim drivers in in this new Uber that she th- said that should be created. It's stuff like this that just makes me question: Should the GOP be be supporting her? And there's a difference between say Laura Loomer and say Marjorie Green in Georgia 14. Uh, Marjorie Green is somebody who is not on the level of Laura Loomer when it comes to these statements, but but Marjorie Green is quote unquote fighting from the outside. She, she's fighting the establishment in Georgia. Me living in Georgia, I can attest to you that there is a lot of establishment at play. There's a lot of establishment at play in Georgia politics when it comes to who's winning these elections, these, these primaries. And I, I, think it, I think it's important to understand that you can be a true outsider, you can be anti-establishment, you can be a Matt Gates, you can be a Jim Jordan, and you can be very well respected, correct? And then you can be like Laura Loomer, who these comments that she said publicly, multiple times, comments very similar, will come back to hurt the Republican Party more than they'll help it. 
any bill that she sponsors that could be good legislation like i i, I even mentioned this i think that the any she would probably be the only congresswoman to mention to to put out a, a true substantive bill that could address social media censorship probably could be the only only substance because she's the only one who's actually truly been banned however the ad hominem attacks that would happen of to her because of this bill they would they would attract this bill and they would start pulling up what she did in the past and it would kill the bill right there it wouldn't leave committee right there especially if 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 Democrats keep the keep the House, I'm not sure if they will. We don't know how 2020 is going to go, but it looks good. I hope I hope Republicans can take back the House. We just need to be weary of people who have an R next to their name. As you've learned with John Kasich and you've learned with with Jeff Flake, you can have an R next to your name and not be a true Republican. You could have an R next to your name and go speak at a DNC. Not saying that Laura is, isn't a true Republican. I'm not saying that. I'm sure Laura and I agree on like 99.999% of political issues. We, we, we we're both pro-life. We're both pro-low taxes, pro-limited government. I think, I think the problem with Laura is she just has, she, she just has these public comments that start, will start to call it into question whether or not she's, she is uh, a bigot. I don't know. So with that, obviously uh, I want to get into this interview with Will. Uh, it's a very good interview, and go, make sure uh, he he tells you what his ads are at the, at the end. Make sure you go follow him. He, he's a great guy. He's been leading the social media censorship charge for years, and I brought him on because he is somebody who Laura Loomer has publicly berated um, on a number of occasions and said some despicable things about. And this is a guy that 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 he that she t- typically agrees with, typically agrees with on, on policies as as he'll tell you. So if she's gonna treat a conservative that she typically agrees with like this. What what do you think she's going to say about these democrats who are in who are in office? Because that's what they're going to say. They're going to say stuff like that. Point point in case. We had we had a a state house member from where I'm from. He said to this to this to this uh to this to the state house uh, representative, she's a woman, I believe she's from Atlanta, she was an African American woman. And they were talking about removing statues. And he told her, you better be quiet or you'll end up in the swamp or, or something like that. You'll go missing. In the, people go missing in the swamp all the time. And P, the media took it to, oh, you want to lynch her. Which I don't think he wanted to lynch her. But it's still like, now that you have this on, you're... you're eh. I've always been told by all, all the people who, who I've worked with who have mentored me. That if I ever run, want to run for office or be taking taking serious as a straight white male Republican, I have to be able to walk a very fine line without being painted as a racist uh, xenophobe. So just keep that in mind, right? You know, we see people, no matter what, if they're a Republican, it's almost a shoo-in that they'll get ra- that they'll get labeled something a Nazi, a racist, a xenophobe. Um, it's just how it works. It just truly is how it works. So just keep that in mind, and just keep in mind with this interview that that I'm not coming for Laura on a, on a political level. I think we probably agree. I'm just coming at her with the future of the Republican Party, and if we truly want to be a force for good, I would love to see a lot of mainstream politicians. Uh, Republican politicians adopt her political beliefs 
when it comes to fighting for what we believe in. I believe she does fight for what she believes in. However, I think her public comments will do more harm than good to the Republican Party. Because if you can look me in the eye and say that CNN, MSNBC won't pick this up, won't pick up what she's saying and put it on on prime time, on, on repeat, to harm the Republican Party, then I don't know if I can take you seriously. Joining us today, we have one of my one of my favorite uh, people in the conservative movement, uh, Will Chamberlain. Will, would you like to introduce yourself to the people? Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm Will Chamberlain. I'm the owner and editor-in-chief of Human Events, and I'm also senior counsel at the Internet Accountability Project, which is a nonprofit seeking to fight the abuses of big tech from a conservative perspective. So that's what I currently do, um, run a magazine and, and help out with that nonprofit. And obviously, you and I have both have both been at the uh, receiving end of big tech censorship. Yes. Um, and that's something we'll get into later on. But first, I think we should start with uh, the theme of this of this hour. Um, being weary of anybody with a Republican next to their name, with an R next to their name on the ballot. Um, you and I are both familiar with a congressional candidate down in Florida named Laura Loomer. Yes. Um, I have, I've figured out that she does not like you as much as she doesn't like me. No, um, she, she's, not, she's not a fan of mine. Not, not at all. She's not a subscriber to human events? I don't think so. Okay, well, t- definitely check. Checked. First off, would you just like to kind of tell the people some, some things that uh, she has said about you uh, just in general? Oh, I mean, well, she's... She's called me, I mean, it, it, like some of the stuff she said on her Telegram account about me was just, it's, it's not even stuff I can really discuss in a, in a podcast that would be broadly heard. It, it's pretty crass and foul. Um, she's called me a mutant. She's accused me of wanting to put uh, a, a virtual burqa on her um, and made a variety of accusations. And, and to understand, like, you know, why would she would be upset with me is that um, we used to be, I would say, you know, friends slash acquaintances, like we, you know, back in 2017. Um, but when she started doing things that I thought were very clearly bigoted things to do, like when she said that we should create an Uber that Muslim drivers weren't able to drive on, um, when she talked about migrants, that it would be a good thing if more drowned in the Mediterranean. I mean, various comments like that. I said, like, she's a bigot. I don't want anything to do with her, that her comments here are beyond the pale. Um, and that led her to go on an extraordinary rant against me on Telegram that included calling me things like a mutant, suggesting it's, it's too bad I was born. I mean, just all sorts of things that were, were, were pretty appalling. So, you know, to the extent I criticize Laura Loomer, I do have to admit there is some mild, at least some mild bias on my part. Like my personal interactions with her have been unpleasant and thus you have to take, you should probably take what I say with a grain of salt in the sense that I, I don't, I, I'm not inclined to have a positive view of this person. Yeah, right. And, you know, to, to, to follow up on that, you know, it, it would be one thing if uh, if she was saying this to like some of her close friends, but to put it on a Telegram, which is a semi-public thing, anybody can can subscribe to it, um, is something that we should definitely be wary of. And one thing that I think all conservatives listening, uh, mm-hmm. one we can we can argue that Laura Loomer has done good for the conservative cause. We can argue that her Loomering people ha- has helped out and has probably influenced some elections. But what we should also be able to to, to look at is, you know, as Republicans. You know, I've been told that if, you know, if you ever run for office in the future, just anything, uh, being a public conservative on Twitter and the world, you have to, you have to be very careful the way you approach things because the media doesn't like us that much. You know, you say one thing, they'll, they'll clip it, they'll take it out of context. So I think that, you know, her being considered, you know, her almost a couple months away from being a congresswoman, maybe potentially, 
it's very dangerous to have a woman where, where these are screenshots that I've seen that a lot of people have seen, you know, and obviously left-leaning people can get a hold of these screenshots. And it's something that can harm our party more than good. And I've said publicly, I think that this, she could be, you know, she could be to the, to the Democrats, what AOC is to us. Somebody that we, we put them on CNN on, Fo- on, or well, we put them on Fox news and all these things on advertising. We raise a lot of money because it's like, Oh, she's a socialist. Well, now we have somebody who's very clearly has viewpoints about, you know, minorities that we say, no, we're not, we're not a racist party. We're not a bigoted party. We accept everyone. Well, now that we will have, you know, potentially have somebody in office who has publicly said these things uh, about you and about, you know, uh, banning Muslims from uh, being able to, to have an Uber in their own, uh, if we were to, if they were to create one, it's just not something I think is a good for the party. Right. So, I mean, I guess let's, you know, we can, we can divide up between the sort of the ethical considerations and the, and the practical political considerations. Right. Um, so, you know, my, my issues with Laura fundamentally are not practical political ones. They're ethical ones, right? I have an ethical issue with the thing she says um, and does. And, and that's, that's not, that's despite some of the occasions where she's had what I would call an effective stunt. Um, like, you know, for example, I, I, very early on, one of the reasons we actually got along all the way back in 2017 is because I thought the stunt she pulled um, at Shakespeare in the Park was actually a very effective stunt. It, it had a way, it was effectively culture jamming. Mm-hmm. The left conceives of itself as being an anti-violence party and, and her interrupting the killing of Donald Trump in the Julius Caesar play was a way of kind of pointing out and revealing performatively that the left was indulging political violence. So, that, I mean, that was actually, I thought that was a very effective stunt. Um, but that whatever the, the effectiveness of the stunts, like it's not okay to say things like Correct. Uh, migrants should die and more, it's more migrants should die in the Mediterranean or, you know, and to be a proud Islamophobe in the way that she describes, like she, she's genuinely done a lot of things that are bigoted towards Muslims as a whole. And I think that it's pretty easy as conservatives to distinguish between the religion of Islam, which is susceptible to criticism, like every religion, as well as people who are violent and terroristic um, without criticizing as a whole 2 billion people on the planet. I think, I think that's pretty easy and, and very much fits within um, the way that conservatives should think. So that's my big ethical issue. As a matter of political pragmatism, you know, I think there's, I do, I do prefer it when people act professionally on social media. And I think that it's, it's generally a good practice for anybody who's running for elected office, but I don't have, my objections to her aren't necessarily rooted in whether or not she's being helping or hurting the party. Like ultimately I do think she's hurting us somewhat um, and, and motivating us, but you know, the, it's, it's a closer question than maybe you know, people think. So, you know, you bring up the example of AOC. I mean, I might push back and say that AOC is, is very motivating to a large segment of the democratic base that might not otherwise turn out, you know, the, the question about whether the political benefit or gain to the democratic party of having a figure like an AOC who while very, very far left and, and can be very aggressive on social media, is also has her own form of charisma and her own very large following, um, her own impact. So, you know, I don't, I, it's hard, like, there are, there are political effects that Loomer has that might be good for the Republican Party, might be bad for the party. And so I, I try and focus on, there's a fundamental ethical question about whether we should be out there supporting a person who we, we know is a bigot, like, we know she's a bigot. And, um, just and it's not a justifiable form of bigotry. So no, yeah, if, if I, any form of bigotry is justifiable. Yeah, I don't think I don't think I don't think any form is. But um, no, I, I think uh, you know, I think you and I both remember when she uh, 
chained herself to Twitter headquarters to protest censorship. And then for weeks, you know, social media censorship was on the top of the issue. Mm-hmm. I think she's very effective uh, at the same way the president is, is getting issues brought to the front that aren't ever brought sure. to the front. And then, but the only problem then becomes, uh, the, back to the ethical one is, let's say she, let's say, I would think she'd be one of the first people in office on the Republican side to sponsor actual legislation that that could attend, that could uh, go after social media censorship, her being one of the biggest things. But then the question becomes, will this bill that could be a good bill be pulled down when they start looking into her past? Right. I mean, and that's, I mean, it's possible that that would happen. I think ultimately, I don't think she's has really any serious chance of winning her race in, in Florida. She's in a something like a D plus 10 district. I mean, and then if you looked at the primary votes, I mean, she got something like 10,000 votes out of 25,000 Republican votes. And the incumbent, Lois Frankel, got seven, like 65,000 out of 75,000. Um, yeah. I mean, she would, she would have to find a whole ton of votes in a district that is probably, you know, when didn't even have, there wasn't even an opponent for uh, Lois Frankel back in 2018, the sitting representative there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, if she manages to somehow win power, congratulations, that would be a very impressive feat. Um, I think the question about how big tech censorship should be framed, I mean, obviously it's a difficult question because the people who are always going to be the first one censored are going to be the most extreme and provocative. Like that's, uh, that's part of the issue. And so you have to, in the same way that the first amendment works, where part of defending the first amendment is about defending the most extreme speech, because that's the one that's going to be challenged similarly on social media. Um, defending the right to use a place like Twitter or Instagram is going to involve defending the right of somebody like a Laura Loomer to have an account um, or an Alex Jones to have an account, for example. Uh, even if, you know, for example, like I don't agree with Laura Loomer at all. I think she's a bigot. I think Alex Jones is a lunatic conspiracy theorist, but that's separate from the question of whether or not they should have access to these public platforms. Um, and like, so that's that's how I think about that problem. I mean, the political, the the pragmatic aspect is, I think you, you don't want to let the person who's the lunatic be the figurehead of your movement necessarily. I mean, it's better to have people who have much more justifiable cases. One of the reasons Republicans are pretty strategic when they elevate people like Lila Rose on the pro-life movement as the, the figurehead of, of a protect of an anti-tech censorship platform. Um, and so as a matter of political strategy, that's what you should do. But I don't think we should, and I don't think we should obsess too much over like figuring out exactly who is just worthy of having a platform and, and concede any ground on this. Like I'm a firm believer that our position vis-a-vis the left and vis-a-vis the tech companies should be everyone gets a right to a Facebook and Twitter platform and you can't ban people except unless they break the law. That should be our default position. Essentially, you know, take the first amendment that applies to public universities and every public organization in the country and say it also applies to Facebook and Twitter too, because they're so important to access and, and have meaningful free speech. No, no, I completely agree with you there. I mean, I, I'm not sure your, your individual dealings with Twitter and if you've ever been, but I remember a week before uh, the 2018 midterms, um, I've, I'd never been suspended, never been anything. Um, I logged onto Twitter one day and it was, you're suspended. Um, I appealed it. They said the, they denied my appeal. And the reason they said I was suspended was because I, um, I tried to evade permanent suspension it was basically like, if you get suspended for a week and then you go make another account, but I'd never done anything like that. So, um, had I not had a good relationship with my congressman and my congressman reached out to Twitter and said, Hey Twitter, you know, what's going on. And then they admitted it was a mistake and they reinstated me. But it's like, 
so I, I'm with you there that we definitely need to find a way to, to, to put this where, um, where it, it, it protects everyone because I'm, I'm not necessarily for regulation in a grand scheme of things. I don't want regulation to impede on a company's ability to grow unless like they're obviously doing, like, I think we should stop companies from, you know, dumping waste into water wells. Cause that's overall mm-hmm. bad. But I, I don't see any argument that says if you let Laura Loomer on Twitter, you let Alex Jones on Twitter, that it's going to, you know, harm their market. Nobody deletes Twitter because Alex Jones is on there. They just block Alex Jones. Right. Well, I mean, that's that sort of connects to the idea that they have this monopoly power that isn't going anywhere. It's the reason everybody needs to be on Twitter in the first place. And it's the reason that uh, if Twitter allows people they don't like on the platform, that won't change their monopoly position. Um, and I think Republicans, especially over the last 30 years, I think there's been a, a large ideological push within the Republican Party to suggest that monopolies are almost always creations of government, that private monopolies aren't really a thing, and therefore using antitrust is a bad idea. I mean, that, that logic is pretty present. But the world of, I mean, the rise of techno- big technology and, and the dominant internet platforms, I mean, it really demonstrates that that's just not true. There, I mean, there are circumstances in which true monopolies can emerge in the private market. And my objection is not, you know, I, I'm not doing this from the perspective of like consumer surplus, making sure that consumers are benefiting. Because the, the classic case against monopoly from the left was always, well, with monopoly power, you can have monopoly pricing and therefore extract a surplus from your, from your consumers that you wouldn't be able to in a competitive marketplace. I'm not so worried about that. Like, I don't, I don't think the, the big problem is that Twitter's extracting too much value from its consumers. The problem is that it does have this monopoly market position in the sense that in its space of public square social media, there aren't meaningful competitors because there's, they already have all the celebrities and all the major figures. So they're, they're not going anywhere else. I mean, there's a reason that every couple of years we have a tr- people try and get everybody to go to parlor and everybody just comes right back to Twitter right. you know, if they can. I mean, that just happened recently a few months ago when we had the, like Carpe Doctrine was banned a brief, you know, everybody checked out Parler again for the first time in a couple of years and then came right back to Twitter. Um, that, that, that's a signal of how powerful Twitter is. And that's the reason that you know, if you can't be a journalist without access to Twitter, if you can't be a, uh, you know, any sort of public figure commentator without access to Twitter, then it, it's so important that they aren't, they shouldn't be in a position to just deprive people of their livelihoods on a whim. Right. No, that, that's very true. And then this is something I just thought of and I'd like to see your thing on it. So I'm sure you were aware that um you know the federal a federal judge ruled that like uh, like a congressman or a senator can't block somebody mm-hmm. because it's keeping them from information so then in this in, in the same scheme of things you do you what do you what is it why is like why is twitter allowed to stop that from being able to see what your senator's tweeting or your congressman's tweeting what, what do you i mean that's that? actually a fair question i don't know that that theory has been tried yet on the idea that you know if we have this law out there that says that these these twitter feeds of these people are public platforms that uh, government officials aren't able to ban people from, well, then Twitter is also the custodian of access to these public square platforms that the, the people, them, the government officials themselves are not allowed to ban people from. Does that impose obligations on Twitter? I don't know. I don't think that, I'm not sure if that argument's been tested in the court of law. Uh, I don't know. I, but, you know, I'm always a big believer in trying to write new law. Like, remember, I mean, think about it this way. The antitrust laws were not written thinking about the problem of social media censorship. They were written right. 100 years ago, signed by, you know, people like... With, well, uh, we're, we're dealing Roosevelt. with... It was Teddy Roosevelt with the uh, trust busting. Sherman Antitrust. I mean, I, I'm yeah. not actually certain, so I don't want to be certain it was Teddy, but I mean, he was certainly the first person to really enforce To use it, it for sure. Yeah. Um, 
And I mean, but that was a distinct problem. I mean, they were thinking about the problems of the trusts and oil trusts and complete monopolization of these, these entire industries, creating too much centralized power and particular figures that meant that there's a limit to what the government, how, how sovereign the government effectively was given how powerful these people were. And I mean, that's so that there's some overlap with that and the problem we're facing, but overall, overall they were so very, very focused on consumer surplus and exploitation of consumers as a result of monopoly power. It's not, it's not precisely the dynamic that's happening here. And so what, because it's a newer problem, I'm a big believer in writing new law to deal with any problem, which is why I, I don't want to worry about, I don't necessarily like, I want to hope that litigation works and can get Twitter and Facebook to behave. But I think the end goal for conservatives should be a law that says Twitter and Facebook can't ban you except for if you break the law, if they do, you can walk into court and get an injunction forcing them to give you your account back. Right. Right. And get attorney's fees like that. That's, I think the end state that, that accomplishes our goals there's still some algorithmic problems and shadow banning type problems, but like the big, to me, the big one of Twitter can just ban you on a whim and sees, you know, the amount of work and time and energy you invest in your platform. They can just take that away from you by snapping their fingers. That needs to change. It's not fair. It's not right. And it doesn't accord even with, you know, kind of classic American concepts of property law. No. And then, so this, one thing that I think is a big problem and why, uh, this hasn't been acted on is outside of a few, you know, you know, your Jim Jordan, Jim Matt Gates is a lot of these Republicans don't even understand really how social media works. There's not a lot of, so like, I'm sure you remember when, when uh, I, w- I want to say it was Zuckerberg was on, um, was on uh, Capitol Hill and a mm-hmm. Senator asked him, so, so how do you make money? And he goes ads. Like it's just yeah. simple things. Like that. So they don't understand, you know, the concepts of it because, you know, there are people who, they grew up and you got news. You, you watched Walter Cronkite when you were, mm-hmm. you know, at 7 PM or whatever time he was on. So I think that's also, you know, something I think what would be um, good is if they got so next time Jack Dorsey and Zuckerberg and all these people come to testify uh, kind of similar to what they did with Kavanaugh. They had, they brought somebody in to ask the questions when Republicans, when their terms are up, that way it can kind of, they can actually ask legitimate questions that will help um, them understand more in depth what the problem is. Yeah, I mean, I think, oddly enough, and there was a recent antitrust hearing just about, I think, a little less than a month ago. Mm-hmm. Um, that was much better, oddly enough. And, and it was funny, it came right after Bill Barr testified in front of, I don't know if you remember this, but Bill I Barr do. testified in front of the House Judiciary Committee. They kept retracting their time. Right, exactly. Reclaiming. It was a, it was a comedy show, right? Like, they, they didn't really want him there to ask him questions. They just wanted to yell at him for the benefit of politics. But, but then, then he's smarter took, than all of them, so they had to right. keep, take my time back. Right. They just couldn't let him talk because he would, he would destroy them. Right. But then they showed up the next day in the interest hearing. And, and I remember listening to this and be like, they're asking good substantive questions. Like I, I, I was like, something is because it's the same people. Right. I mean, not all of them, but some of them, right. It was the full judiciary committee inquiry, you know, interrogating bar. And then it was the antitrust subcommittee of the judiciary committee mm-hmm. interrogating the, the tech CEOs. And I'm like, these people suddenly sound reasonable and normal and aren't playing for the crowds anymore, but are asking very substantive, specific questions about the, the anti-competitive practices of some of these companies. I mean, I don't know exactly who it was, but I think it was one of the liberal um, people asking about, it might have been Jayapal, who normally is just completely odious and obnoxious. But she asked a very good, I think it was she who asked a very good line of questions about Amazon essentially massively undercutting and, and using predatory pricing in the market for diapers to mm-hmm. force one of their competitors in the diaper market to sell to them. Basically yeah. saying, we can lose money for years and bank, you know, outcompete you, basically make you either sell at a loss or, uh, or not sell at all. 
just put them out of business. Put, put, we will put you out of business unless you agree to sell your company. To I remember I mean, learning about that in AP government a few years ago. Yeah. yeah. Like that's, yeah. And, and that's a scary power. I mean, and, and on the gaming competitive side, it's a very good question. Republicans have also gotten better. I think, you know, it's a lot better than it was two years ago. A lot of people understand that big tech censorship is a problem, are serious about things like antitrust and, and potentially writing new law to remedy that problem. Um, the, the landscape is shifting in a way that makes me optimistic. And, and I remember having so many fights two years ago, even with just influencers on Twitter who didn't agree with me. And now, I mean, I now remember watching basically you. coming around to, to I remember, I remember watching you. There was only, there was so many influencers and just people watching government needs to stay out of this. I'm like, okay, but when you get banned and you can't argue, like you like to argue, you know, you won't have a platform anymore. But I remember watching you argue with people who are like, the government shouldn't get involved. I'm like, there's certain things in which the government should get involved. And this is one of them. Um, and I, I do, I, I have seen the trend that you have. I think what's going to be very funny is I think an antitrust law is going to come because, you know, the Democrats are mad at Jeff Bezos for making billions of dollars a year and is adding to his net worth. And mm-hmm. then the, the Republicans are like, well, you're, you're silencing my, my constituency. You know, Jim Jordan's like, you're silencing people who follow me. I believe if I'm not wrong, was it, they banned like Congressman Jordan uh, and some other ones or suspended them shortly or something like there that. Was something, they, they did something to make it on Twitter so that they wouldn't appear in like the search bar, right? Like normally, so if you're on Twitter, there's a little search bar in the top right corner and you can search people's names to find their accounts. Right. But if you were, for whatever reason, certain accounts were just not appearing and, and among them were, were congressmen, right? You type in Matt Gates, and Matt Gates's account would not show up. Um, that's a real problem. I mean, that's a, that's a serious disrespect of, of elected officials from a company that owns the public square in which most, pub, you know, in like a huge amount of public discourse is had. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that, that was a wake up call, I think. And the thing is, there's just been more and more progressive wake up calls as more and more people get banned that people value and like as, as people they follow on Twitter or Facebook or YouTube. Um, and as the bias inherent in like the fact that that never happens to the left, that there's always, it always seems there's a double standard and that the rules do not apply to the left, but they apply super strictly to conservatives. Um, And then realizing the impact that Twitter had on the 2016 election and how motivated, you know, average conservatives are to, to deal with this because no, no, and just, if you're a normal average everyday conservative with a 500,000 followers or whatever, you don't want to feel that sort of Damocles hanging over your head, but even if it falls, nobody's going to, Nobody will know, and, and you're just screwed. I mean, it's even worse if you lose something like a Facebook, which is, I mean, I use a Facebook as a repository of, of a decade's worth of old photos and, and communications, right. and it's how, it's sort of the lingering backstop for the people who aren't on my phone. If I just want to reach out to somebody, I would usually do it through a Facebook. Yeah, Facebook um, is something I used to network a lot. I mean, within my, my own states party, I live in Georgia. I'm pretty sure you're in D.C. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have like a bunch of like district chairs that I don't talk to on a, on a daily basis, but we keep up with each other because I see their posts, they see my posts. So I got district chairs, you know, I got the first lady, the governor, they're all friends on Facebook. So it's, you know, it looks like it, and it's like, it, that's something that, you know, taking that away could could harm a lot because now I can't keep in touch with these other people. Uh, for my livelihood that I like, you know, my, my consulting and everything that I do, it, I can't keep in touch with these people. Yeah. And I mean, that's not, again, that's not taking away someone's Facebook is really profound. I mean, it's not just a deprivation of their ability to communicate with certain people. It's a deprivation of like their ability to have their photo. I mean, it, it's such a different platform and how people used it, especially in the late two thousands, early part of uh, the teens, I guess we're calling them the teens now, right? I guess we're so in the, the 20s. We're, Remember, this is going to be the 20s, right? We, we still talk right. about the 20s as the 1920s. This will be the 20s. This is our 20s. This is what we'll tell our grandkids. Yeah. 
So uh, in the teens, like, yeah, I mean, that will... It's so weird. Facebook is important. It's not, it's just not something people should be able to, to take away from you on a whim. Like you, that, that, that is what I think frustrates me. These companies think they ought to have the power to determine who gets to be a real person on the internet and who doesn't. And my answer is no, you shouldn't. That actually, in a world where we have a first amendment, we don't even let the government have that power. Right. right. But like, so there's no way a private company should have. Right. There, there, there are governments where the places where the government has that power reserves it to itself, places like China. We don't let our government have that power. And we certainly, certainly shouldn't let Twitter and Facebook have. I completely agree. Um, I, I think that we, as a party, need to need to address because this is one thing. You know, like you said, if somebody with five hundred or thousand followers gets gets banned, you know, to them it's the world's over almost because you know, mm. social media censorship is something you and I have both watched. And you know, if if you were to get banned tomorrow, and knock on wood, that doesn't happen a lot of people notice you're gone. And mm-hmm. I, I think justifiably, there'd be a lot of people lobbying, hey, get Will Chamberlain reinstated. But to Joe, who lives in Iowa, has a thousand followers and he loves his Twitter account, he's got, nobody's going to know he's gone, really. I mean, none of, the, yeah. none of those thousand followers are probably, you know, good friends with Joe to the point where they're going to, and then nobody's really going to, you're not going to see a yeah, national Even movement. if he makes a ruckus, like who's going who's gonna to be like, well, Joe from Iowa needs to have his account restored, right? Like free Joe. It's just not, right. not going to happen. But at the same time, like it's, it's a big deal. I mean, and, and Twitter is, I mean, especially for small accounts on Twitter, you can usually, you can route around it if you're that small. You can make another account and get away with it. But um, I don't know. It's, it, it, it bothers me how kind of frivolously that the left often treats the, the, the ability to use social media, how integral it is to the experience of, of modern life. Right. Like, you know, be like telling somebody you couldn't have a phone or you couldn't have a television. I mean, it's a very, very important part of our, our discourse. And it's just, again, yeah, not something these companies should be able to take away from you. Right. And, you know, to answer, to get onto one more question, we've, we've hinted at, you know, the Republican party, how we've improved and moving forward, you know, where do you see the Republican party or the GOP in the next, you know, 10 15, 20 years. So, I mean, it's, it, I, I don't think if you would call it Trumpism is going anywhere, right? Like the, the basic insight that Donald Trump had that apparently had missed, you know, like evaded um, every serious establishment figure was that the policies of the party did not align with their voting base at all. And so the moment somebody showed up and was like, actually, I'm not 100% pro-immigration. And actually, I think I'm not 100% pro-free trade either. I'm, I'm going to look out for average workers. I'm going to be more populist. I'm not just going to take money from big business and, and be the front of big business no matter what. I mean, that, that turned out that was where the base was, right? That, if true. you look at studies. But forgotten like, people. Right. That's, what they, and, that's what they're dubbed. And that's, and that's a good thing. I think that ultimately, you know, a lot of those especially in a world where you have all these tech monopolies, like it's not clear why it is in Republican interest to defend their right to maintain their monopolies, especially when they're so hostile to us. Like why that, that doesn't make sense to me at all. So I don't think that's going anywhere. I think the sort of never Trump type people are permanently exiled because I've also, I also have a basic thesis about where the Republican party is and where Republican voters are. It's a pretty heterodox party in a lot of ways. There's a lot of tolerance for dissent um, and differing views on a variety of issues. And we think about the debates on foreign policy, on trade, on social issues. I mean, there are serious debates among Republicans, but the one thing you can't do, the sort of unifying bond, glue of the party right now is uh, the loyalty betrayal axis, 
right? Like mm -hmm. Republican voters hate people who are disloyal to the party and the president right now. And there's nothing that pisses them off more. So, you know, you can be sort of like, you can be a Susan Collins and people aren't that upset with you, but you can't be Mitt Romney. You can't be Jeff Flake. You can't be John Kasich, uh, John Kasich, right? Like there, those people have, there's such contempt and loathing for those people among the base. Like nothing I say gets more traction than when I'm like, name a more useless politician than Mitt Romney. Right. Like, and, and remember, this guy was a former nominee of the party. This was a guy just, like half just eight years ago, which yeah, just eight years ago. So in the grand I mean, scheme of things, it's not that long. Two of the most disloyal Republican senators, actually, no, the two most disloyal Republican senators during the during Trump's presidency were both former Republican nominees for president. Mitt right? Romney McCain McCain. And, and, and John McCain. Easily both the most, most disloyal people. Um, and so that has really, conservative voters are tired of that. So that's not going to fly anymore, which means that the people who rebelled against Trump and Trumpism and went hard against him are not going to be able to come back in because from the perspective of base voters, they have been disloyal. There's Correct. some chance that people who stayed supportive, but maybe have a different view on things will be able to gain some influence. People like say like a Dan Crenshaw, for instance, or a Nikki Haley, who hasn't been like overtly and openly disloyal, although Haley has gotten close at times. Um, but, uh, but like Crenshaw, for instance, is generally seen as a strong supporter of the president, but has very different views in the president on a number of issues. He has some hope of like, whatever, you know, for the establishment types of bringing the GOP back to sort of what it was in the 2000s. More but of like a, a Bush's, a Bush more, more, policies. A little more neocon, a little more of the, the old triad of sort of like, you know, the sort of evangelical social conservatism plus national security hawk plus, plus pro-business, right? right? That was like the classic triad. And that's been blown up by Trump. Um, on national security, we're much more moderate on the business stuff we're much more moderate and on the uh, social conservatism stuff we're we're actually more moderate certainly than we would have been 10 years ago right think about Correct. how we're now pro-game you know republican party is basically a pro-game marriage now for example so mm -hmm. um you know that's that's a that's a very different party from what it was i don't think there's much hope of it it's not going to go back trumpist trumpy populism nationalism is here to stay and and that's all that's true regardless of whether trump wins or loses i think no, I completely agree with you. I think one thing, I think, the, I, one, I've said if Rand Paul, not Rand Paul, Ron Paul doesn't run for, for, pre, for president in eight and 12, it, it doesn't set the stage for Trump to win because he started right. sowing these within the Republican Party. And that's, you know, Ron Paul's base is very, very similar to what Donald Trump's early base was. Mm -hmm. um, but I completely agree with you. I think that, you know, the Trump conservatism uh you know people are Reagan conservatives i think there's gonna be people who are trump conservatives and i definitely will agree with you i've seen that it's gotten more now that more like influencers are starting to like i support the president on 99.9 percent .9 issues but on this issue he's wrong whether it be the bump stock ban whatever it may be um but i think you're definitely correct I, and i think in the rise of social media and alternative media where you don't have to you don't have to make your you know, your individual party leadership happy in order to get elected now that you can go directly to the voter through Facebook or through whatever. I think that we'll start to see, you know, more, more activists who tend to be more populist, you know, the, the, yeah. they tend to be more on the Rand Paul, Donald Trump side where that, you know, they want freedom and they want people to do what they want to do without having to succumb to, you know, the, the billionaires and stuff like that. Cause a lot of people don't understand that the Republican party accepts just as much PAC contribution as the democratic party does. Yeah. Although, I mean, I just think, but I think you're right. I think social media has changed the nature of who can easily win. 
before you really needed to be in good standing with the establishment gatekeepers, and now they don't matter. And part, a lot, large part of this rebellion is this sort of deep resentment that that group of never Trump political consultants feels at being marginalized and newly irrelevant, right? Like if you put invest all your political capital in getting saying Trump is this unique threat, uh, he shouldn't win the nomination, and then oh, it'd be a little better if Hillary won, and then she loses. Well, then you're you're out, right? The party that you're nominally a member of has no use for you, which means you're you're just out of power entirely. Which I think explains the sort of over overarching resentment. Um, oh, I'll let you finish. Sorry. Well, what I was, yeah. Oh, oh. Go ahead. You got it. You got it. You're the guest. Go. I forgot. I forgot what I was going to say. Oh well. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's very it's very crazy that yeah you know, this is one of the first times, at least in my lifetime, um, that you have main mainstream republicans you know john Kasich and jeff like they're you know they're they're not as mainstream in like today but they're still you know former senators former governors that they're like that Kasich will go and speak at a dnc that is pretty mm-hmm. much almost unheard of you can disagree with your president and i'm sure there are a lot of senators and congressmen who do disagree with trump a lot but they're not going to go and you know sow that dishonesty or sow that that seed within the democratic movement because they understand the democrats could care less about Kasich. Oh, Once yeah. 2020 is over, he's never going to be seen on TV again, unless by that, that weird anti-Trump uh, media. But other than that, he's not really going to get seen on TV again. CNN's not going to invite him on unless, unless they want to make fun of the president. Right. I mean, all, those people are, are just useful idiots for a party that is, you know, also rioting in the streets and, and doing all sorts of crazy stuff. Like, I don't really, there's, there's a lot to say about John Kasich. None of it is very nice. <laughs> yeah, right. no. Ohio, the Ohio Republican Party, outside of Aaron Carpenter, is they need some work. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think. Uh, well, they they also had some one of their guys just got indicted for fraud. I remember. Yeah, he was starting um, one of the Never Trump movements. Was they it, actually got a presidential retweet when I when I you know clarified that? And I think it was Matt Borges or whoever you know started mm-hmm. a whole Never you know Republican voters against Trump in Ohio. I think it was. And then he got I think it was. On. The, I think it was like their GOP chair or something like that. Yeah. But yeah. Former, I think their former GOP chair. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. I'm, yeah. He was at, they were at somewhere with like a former governor's house or whatever. And they got like raided by the FBI or something. I remember Aaron was telling me, but what, what another thing that we definitely, that, you know, I'll bring up here is a lot of like what we need to be careful of as conservatives, a lot of like, a lot of like interstate party, like leadership, not elected officials, but like the actual, like Georgia GOP, Florida GOP, a lot of those like higher ups, they're very, very, very corrupt. And we need to, we need to take, we need to go after them and their corruption as hard as we go after Democrats and their corruption, because right. that, because as, as much as we're using Democrat corruption, they're using Republican corruption. So if we root that out. It, it'll help the party overall. Oh yeah. No, I mean, I'm a big believer in that. I mean, and, and I take you one further, right? Like basically I, I think fraud is bad. Uh, we should, we should root it out. Um, and I don't know if you saw that, I mean, not to bring up something else in the news, but Steve Bannon was just indicted mm-hmm. uh, for fraud uh, relating to the We Build the Wall scam. Uh, that, was that Brian Colfage? That was Brian Colfage, yeah. Okay. Um, and, you know, I'm a lawyer. So, I, I mean, I read through that indictment and I was, I had an open mind. I was ready to, you know, agree that, oh, this is another Michael Flynn case where it's just an unfair prosecution of a political ally of Trump. I read the indictment. I'm like, no, this is what some, a friend of mine uh, who's a very good lawyer called it garden variety fraud. Um, basically, uh, to raise money for their new private entity, um, they Brian Colfitch went out in public on a number of occasions and said, I will not take a diamond compensation. This will be a volunteer effort. I will not take a penny. Moreover, I couldn't even take a penny if I wanted to because we're setting up controls and, and advisory board and auditing that will prevent me from doing so. 
when in reality he was structuring a deal where he was going to get paid 20 grand a month out of eventually from funds that that's fraud. If you, if you, if you lie to people to raise money for a nonprofit, that's fraud. Um, yeah. He should at least just not, you know, had he not campaigned that he's not taking money now, it's just bad. Right. Now we're talking fraud. Right. And there's no reason he couldn't have been honest about it and just said, you know, well, we're going to raise a lot of money. I, I'm going to take, if I work for this full time, I'm going to take a competitive nonprofit salary because that's, that's, I need to feed my family. And that's people my would have understood. Yeah. And people, yeah. People would have been happy to donate, but it's like, I don't like it when, you know, I mean, I don't like it when party bosses lie to their constituents and are corrupt and take bribes. And I don't like it when influencers or people who ask for donations lie to the people they're asking. I think that's, that's really, yeah. you know, and a big one, I'm not sure if you're big on, if you watch TikTok a lot, but, um, you know, a guy who I'm sure you've heard of Nick videos, he, um, him and another actually guy. not, but I'll, I'll, I'll let you explain. Okay. Well, him and another guy will, uh, definitely don't look into him now. Um, <laughs> him, him and another guy, they, uh, for like two weeks, they were like, yeah, me and I'm not going to mention the other guy's name, me and, uh, me and so-and-so want to raise money so we can start a conservative Twitch live stream. We need to get computers and equipment. I'm like, okay, cool, whatever. I didn't donate, but whatever. And then now neither of them are in the political movement anymore. I don't think they ever started this. And I'm like, this is like, this is not good. But yeah, what I think another problem is, yeah. What I think another problem is, um, and you can you can you can speak on this if you want to. I don't want to call. I don't want to make you speak on something you're not comfortable with. Yeah. Is we don't do a good time like so and so doing background checks as conservatives about who we're we're prompting up to these levels, you know, you know, which, you know, teenagers are we saying, yeah, yeah, they might actually be the future of this party versus you know, a teenager who just wants clout. Um, we don't do a good time looking into people. I mean, I think social media in general has made, it has, you know, it's expanded the opportunity for people who are independent and on their own, but it, it also by removing the gatekeepers means that some of the people who would normally should get gate kept are not right. Like it makes it easier to commit the kind of frauds that, uh, we're talking about it makes it easier um, to to just deceive people to grift to do a variety of things. Right. I, um, I know. Uh, I know a social media consultant who does for campaigns, and he, um, you know, he the first tweet he ever does for any campaign is well, at least this was back in uh, um, last year, um, was you know when I get elected in 2020, I'm going to be a staunch you know defender of the president. Follow me if you want to have a fighter in Congress. It's pretty much word for word. Just change the name. Yeah. But it gets like they get like 10,000 followers overnight. And it's like, you don't know anything about this guy other than he says he's going to be a staunch defender of the president. Right. There's no track record or anything. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a powerful thing, right? Like, and it does, it does open things up at the same time. I mean, it it shows you how angry people are with the establishment Republicans that they'll just be like, Oh, someone who says they're going to defend the president hundred percent as a candidate. Good. Like they were so tired of, I mean, I, I think that just is, we're so, so tired of people who aren't loyal to the president who are constantly fighting with them, who are so trying to undermine him behind the scenes. Like the, the base is just desperate for people to like back the president that they elected. No, I, I completely agree with you. And you know, Will, I want to take, I want to take the time to thank you for coming on. Um, would you like to tell the people, you know, what, what you and I, IAP and everything are doing and how they can help you and where they can find you? Yeah. So uh, let's see, you can find me on first on the editor in chief of human events. If you want to become a member to our private Great Discord channel, Great content. Uh, human events.com slash members. Um, you can find me on Twitter and Periscope at Will Chamberlain. That's where I produce most of the content right now. Um, and uh, for the IAP, I believe, I'm not sure exactly what the website is. I think it might be theiap.org, but it's something along those lines. 
and uh, if they have, they are a nonprofit as well that can be donated to. Um, but you taking a twenty k a month salary? I am not taking a twenty k a month salary. No, far from it. Oh man. Uh, you know, and if and if I were, I would tell you. <laughs> right. We'll, I would we'll be, be ashamed of that fact. Well, do you do you swear that if you're ever taking a twenty k a month salary, you will announce it right here on the podcast? On this podcast? On this podcast. I don't know about that, man. We'll, we'll make sure that I'm not going to swear. I will make an effort. I'm just <laughs> I mean, mess with you. Be careful of the representat- representations you make, people. They're, they're, they can come back to bite you if they aren't true. For sure. Well, if you guys are paying 20K a month, just where do I apply? <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway, it was great finding you. you find, follow him at Will Chamberlain, correct? Yep. Um, he's, he put, puts out great content. I've, I've loved watching you grow over the past two, three years or so in the yeah. conservative movement. Go follow him, guys. Hey, a big thank you to uh, to Will for coming on. Uh, he's a good guy. Like I said, you should definitely go follow him. Um, and to wrap this up, you know, like like we talked about, it's important for a couple of things to ensure that we, uh, as Republicans, are doing are doing our due diligence on these candidates and on on these influencers to make sure that we don't put somebody who doesn't deserve to be at the front of the movement at the front of the movement. Um, and it's also important that we hold these these media companies or not these media companies these social media companies we hold them accountable for for censoring us and for for stopping our speech for stifling our speech it's important that we hold them accountable thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the let free ring podcast make sure you hit that subscribe button because you don't want to miss out on our great episodes coming out every monday thanks to your support we are quickly becoming the fastest growing teenage conservative podcast in the nation as always, if you have any questions or concerns, you can email me, noah at noahring.org. Again, that's noah at noahring.org. Thank you guys a ton. I'll see you guys next Monday. Y'all have a blessed week. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.